Support for this podcast comes from Is Business Broken, a podcast from BU Questrom School of Business. Stick around until the end of this podcast for a preview of a recent episode exploring the history of investors holding businesses accountable and the dawn of the ESG, or Environmental Social Governance, movement. Hi there, it's Megna. Before you listen to the podcast today, I just wanted to let you know that our show is about Formula One racing and a Netflix series. So in the broadcast version of today's episode that went out on the radio, we played some clips of this particular Netflix series. Now, we do not have the rights to use those clips in this podcast. There's a legal difference between what we can do on the air, on the radio, and what we can do in a downloadable podcast. If it sounds complicated, that's just because it is. It's the glorious world of intellectual property. But anyway, we have to cut out those Netflix series clips from this podcast. So if you notice a couple of less than elegant moments that you don't usually hear on On Point, we just wanted to let you know that that's why. Anyway, on to the show. This is On Point. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty. And happy Friday, everyone, by the way. So I'm wondering, did this happen to you? A while back, I'm staring at my Netflix home screen, looking for something new to watch, and I'm kind of swiping through the suggestions going, no, 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 and no. Which is weird, because my Netflix and chill habit is pretty limited to sci-fi, mountaineering documentaries, nature films, and brainless comedies. But actually, I have to admit, I was also kind of thrilled that the algorithm was struggling because I also hate thinking that I'm so easily knowable and predictable to corporate computing. Anyway, over and over again, this show, this one particular show that I kept saying no to, Formula One Drive to Survive, it keeps coming up on my home screen. And I'm like, no, Overpaid European playboys in their fast cars spraying champagne all over each other? No, thank you. But then, look, (laughs) one day, I, like many, many other Americans, I just gave up, and I tapped. And I was greeted by the gorgeous, grinning face of Danny Ricardo. Well, four seasons in... F1 is seeing a major rise in popularity in the United States. And is it because of this show? Well, Drew Lawrence joins us. He's a freelance reporter who's contributed to Sports Illustrated, The Guardian, and other major publications. He's working on an upcoming F1 podcast for the Red Bulleting, a lifestyle magazine published by... Red Bull Media House. And Carlos Serra is also with us. He's chief operating officer at Audience, an audience intelligence and social media analysis company. And Carlos, I want to start with you. What is going on? I mean, you're in Spain right now, but what's going on here in the United States that's made F1 suddenly so popular? Yeah, I wonder what's going on. (laughs) Hi, Megna. Hi. Thank, Thank you for having me in the show. Well, What's going on? Because when I used to live in the U.S. 20 years ago, no one cared about the F1. It was a European nerd sport that no one 
wanted to watch because it was boring. And boring is the word that I think people use when when they have not watched Drive to Survive. So there must be something in Drive to Survive that is making the audiences to have a different experience. Yeah, I mean it's all the it's all the action of a multi-hour race packed into about an hour. First and foremost, beautifully produced and incredible stories. But but Drew Lawrence, I mean, do you think that there is a direct correlation between this Netflix series and the fact that uh, a viewership in the United States of F1, like actual F1 races, has gone up, what, 50, 60 percent in just a few years? Hi, Magna. I absolutely think there is a, a correlation. And I think it's because uh, under American, new American management, the sport has managed to do Uh, to tap into that very thing that we Americans love so much, and that is sort of soapy reality-style drama, which is our our national love language. And they've been able to take what is a very sort of uh, STEM-focused, you know, nerds, uh, sort of mechanically-driven nerd sport uh, and, and... and push it through sort of like the Bravo lifetime filter of personalities, politics, drama, and, uh, and, uh, sort of a stewing rivalry and, um, and, and allow us as sort of, uh, newcomers, uh, sort of, uh, um, you know, um, casual viewers to really connect with the the people and the personalities yeah. at the center of the uh, the sport. Okay, so Drew, the way you just described it, like STEM nerd sports meets Bravo uh, personality shows, all of a sudden makes me realize, oh yeah, I was a pretty easy target <laughs> for, <laughs> yeah. for, for, this, for this series. No wonder Netflix was pushing it so hard on my home screen, but I want to hear, we'll talk about F1 in detail, but I do want to hear the story from both of you, Drew and Carlos, about how this series even first got made. So, Carlos, let me let me just talk to you here for a second. Was it generated by F1? Was it a Netflix project? I mean, what was the, the genesis of Drive to Survive? I mean, th- this is a Netflix show. It's, uh, it's uh, definitely owned by them and produced by them, but it was... It's one of those that they identify there is a gap there. They then identify the audience wants this type of content, and then they go and they find, they speak with them, they produce it. And But today I think, and the question is different, I would put it in a way, can the F1 continue to grow in the U.S. or stay there or even in other parts of the world without Drive to Survive? And that might be a very interesting question because... Most of the new generations, the young demographics, um, they are consuming and they are engaging with everyone through this show. It's been that uh, that way to consume it. So can the F1 continue to survive for the longer term with being a global audience without the show? That mm-hmm. will be a very interesting question. Just think about one thing. Back in the days... Bernie Eccleston did not even allow to record the bast- the backstage. Uh, the backstage is now being recorded. It can be mm-hmm. taken to social media. It can be put on the show. 
that's a different way to consume F1. Again, without that, maybe you didn't connect with the personalities of the individuals. And that's just happening because of the show and because of the new ownership. So again, can the F1 survive without this type of experience and consumption? Maybe not. Yeah, so so the point being that they have to produce a permanent conversion to actual fans versus fans of the show primarily. So Drew, so Drew Lawrence, I mean, can you tell me a little bit more about what you know about the backstory about how this show got created? Because we should start with the fact that before Drive to Survive came, uh, you know, to Netflix, if I have this right, I, I mean, as you said, like F1 was sort of languishing in popularity in the United States, but... Uh, F1 and all the brands associated with it really, really wanted to grow in the U.S. Is that where all this begins? Yeah. So you have you sort of have uh, the the key moment. The turning point is 2007 when the sport changes hand from uh, the aforementioned Bernie Ecclestone, uh, a British lifer who uh, who had controlled the sport for decades to Liberty Media Group, this Colorado-based uh, uh, communications company that owns the Braves, they have Sirius Satellite Radio, and they really, you know, made a priority of making the, giving the, the sport a foothold in the United States. And the first part of that plan was you know, simply uh, getting uh sort of freeing up a lot of the that content that uh that bernie had kept under lock and key sort of like the behind the scenes stuff but also the social stuff which which is the the echo chamber that the sport needs to to grow and then the second part of it was sort of casting about and commissioning uh this this idea that they had for a a behind the scenes uh series and as i understand it they were sort of uh already ahead on developing something with Netflix, a box to box, the, the company that actually makes it, um, and also made, uh, the, uh, the brilliant documentary Senna back in mm -hmm. 2010 was in discussions with Red Bull about doing something just about Red Bull. And they said, Hey, you should really talk to Liberty because they're in, they're trying to develop something like that, but involving the whole series. So those efforts just combined. And then you got, uh, drive to survive, but it's really this American-led uh, group that that can sort of see that understands the sensibility of its local audience, and uh, and really pushing to develop something uh, that connected with them because they knew they needed to. They had a good product; they just needed to bridge the gap between it and and us. Okay. Well, we're going to talk more about exactly how they did it, because what they knew about the American audience, I want to understand a little bit more uh, as well, and then explore whether we're going to see you know, more documentaries maybe just like this. And I put documentaries, in a sense, in quotes. But we're talking about the rise, the meteoric rise of Formula One motor racing in the United States and how that tracks very closely with the Netflix series Drive to Survive. We'll be back. This is On Point. Support for the On Point podcast comes from Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform that lets you find candidates fast. 
Ditch the busy work and use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash OnPoint. That's Indeed.com slash OnPoint. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Support for this podcast comes from Is Business Broken, a podcast from BU Questrom School of Business. Listen on for a preview of one of the episodes. ESG, or environmental social governance, challenges businesses to think beyond the immediate bottom line. But before ESG, the Balance Scorecard did something similar. Questrom's Eddie Riedel explains. The big thing that was groundbreaking about the Balance Scorecard is really this idea to move beyond thinking about financial statements, which everybody thought about since the 1920s, right? That was kind of the gold standard for how to evaluate a company and its performance. And the balanced scorecard's big insight, I think, was to get companies internally to think about, well, what if you don't just focus on financial measures? There are other things that are going to affect your performance, and maybe they won't affect them today, but they're going to affect them in the short term, midterm, long term. Building in those other criteria, those other dimensions, and explicitly linking that to your strategy, to how your company is going to operate, what kind of big decisions it's going to make, that's really what the big insight of the balanced scorecard was meant to do. And at the time, uh, right now, it doesn't seem particularly revolutionary. It seems kind of obvious. We've been stuck in the ESG movement for a while, and thinking about linking these things to corporate strategy seems pretty obvious. At the time, it was a pretty big, whoa, kind of moment. Find the full episode by searching for Is Business Broken wherever you listen to podcasts and learn more about the Mayrotra Institute for Business, Markets, and Society at ibms.bu.edu. This is On Point. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty. Today, we're talking about the relationship between a Netflix series called Formula One Drive to Survive and the sudden meteoric rise of Formula One racing in the United States, the rise in its popularity, and the fact that the two are closely related due to some savvy production, excellent advertising, and algorithmic manipulation. Let me call it that. I'm joined today by Drew Lawrence. He's a freelance reporter who's written for Sports Illustrated, The Guardian, and other major publications about Formula One. And Carlos Serra is with us today. He's chief operating officer at Audience, an audience intelligent and social media analysis company. Carlos Serra, you know what's interesting to me is that, in fact, the central uh, in point of motor racing, the actual car race itself, is um, not the central point of uh, Drive to Survive, the series. And this, I mean, is it fair, I think it's fair to say that that was deliberately engineered into the series. It wasn't for racing fans to to begin with. So it, it came from uh, Netflix's understanding of its audience or this audience intelligence. Can you tell us uh, what that means, Carlos, audience intelligence? Yeah, definitely. So two things there. One is there are two ways to be able to come up with drives to survive as a consumer. So how Megna finds uh, this show, two things. One, if you're already Netflix and you're a subscriber, the way you are watching the shows, going back, stopping, pausing, skipping episodes, combined with the understanding of what 
those titles they represent in terms of genre and different characteristics that they assign to it, actors, etc. All of that creates a massive amount of data within Netflix to understand, and somehow I think that made that comparison, that um, other shows that they are full of drama and they can be the same as this one, that it's full of drama, even if it's nothing to do one with the other. That's one thing. The other thing is, if you know that overall, and today you tweet about this show and the first thing you got is an IndyCar fan, a fan criticizing the F1 as being just giving laps in a boring way. If you know that taking a show in the US, is not, you're not gonna win with a pure car enthusiast and, and the pure motor racing fan. You need to find those audiences that they are your target to grow. And if you decided that that was younger audiences and you started to look at them the same way that they look at people within Netflix, which is how people watch shows. Now, when we look at the rest of the world, we try to not segment by demographics. So it's not just about the younger generations or getting more females involved. You start looking at how they consume how they get influenced, and you get combinations of that. So you do something called data clustering, segmentation, based on how they are consuming media, how they are consuming and being influenced by different, actually, influencers, personalities, brands, retailers. And you end up with these clusters where one of them might be gamers, mm -hmm. which was uh, one of the segments they started to to attract, and now I'm gonna stay at that segment yeah. because it's not only who the audience was that you wanted to attract, but as well how they behave online. So this gamer segment, they stay in Twitch, spend a lot of time on Twitch, on Reddit, and they create content, original content that then goes viral, that then gets taken to other people, so that's another way of Netflix suddenly to get people going to the show or to get people subscribing to Netflix just for Drive to Survive. So suddenly you wanted to go to the US, you knew that you had to sell the F1 without talking about the F1 and, uh, and about the sport. And you targeted certain groups like gamers or business dads how do I go to them? Where do they spend time? How can I actually yeah. take them to the show? I and see. that's what they did. When we look at the audience, uh, taking social media data just as a comparison, half of the audience has nothing to do with cars or motor racing. <laughs> Amazing. So, so just so I, I, I'm clear on this, is so Netflix ha in terms of uh, viewing habits, as you said earlier, Netflix has all this very detailed data about our viewing habits, include, you know, what we watch, what we skip, when we pause, uh, the types of uh, characters that we seem to be drawn to, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Are they selling this data to uh, businesses, production companies, et cetera? No. no. And that's a very important point. <laughs> that's very important. That's why I was making the difference between the data they have inside on how people are watching 
and then the data that you can gather in the market on how to market to new audiences or build proxies to understand how to market to your own audience. Those two, they don't get matched. On the contrary, the likes of Spotify on music and Netflix on uh, video content, they make all of that data anonymous. And really when, when the user is consuming data, it's, and you know as well who they are, where they are located, where they consume, their age, their gender, etc. You make all of that data anonymous and rather you focus on clusters. What uh-huh. we've uh, understood, particularly nowadays after uh, decades of maybe not having best practices like as such, before we try to personalize at the individual level, we try to do a lot of cross-matching between those individuals inside and outside our own core data. Today, people don't do that. They understood that the best way to personalize is by creating clusters and segments um, because one, that's more privacy compliant and two, because it's more scalable and it really yeah. allows you to be more more efficient in your marketing and and getting audiences. So in a sense, um, what a company like Netflix can do is say to F1, uh, you want to attract more fans in the United States. Well, we have these types, not individuals, but types of people. We know what they tend to watch. So we can help you create a a series kind of engineered for for those types. And Drew Lawrence, in fact, you've written about this um, and and how successful Drive to Survive is in doing this. And I just want to read a, a paragraph of what you wrote, Drew, because it's so well done. <laughs> you, write, you write that the brilliance of Drive to Survive, presenting F1 in terms uh, a real Housewives fan can process. Daniel Ricardo is the guy you want leading your pub crawl, the driver, of course. Lance Stroll is the spoiled son of a billionaire Bond villain. That's exactly how I felt when I watched. Uh-huh. Uh, and Christian Horner is married to Ginger Spice. And yet Mercedes team principal Toto Wolf, a.k.a. racing Arnold Schwarzenegger, lives rent-free in his head. Um, Drew, I have to say Toto Wolf might actually be my favorite person um, in the series. But it is the way that... These real people uh, are characterized in the series. I mean, does that match to how, um, you know, true blue F1 fans for many, many years see them? To an extent. I mean, box to box definitely takes some liberties and turning up certain elements of personality for uh, narrative purposes. But if you watch, uh, particularly last year as Mercedes and, and Red Bull were in an intense fight for the Drivers' Championship and the Constructors' Championship. Uh, you know, these guys were sniping at each other, uh, you know, subtweeting each other quite uh, publicly and uh, relentlessly. And not only that, but going, you know, routinely sort of challenging uh, uh, each other uh, in front of the, like the the racing stewards, to kind of like going to the principal's office and complaining about like what the other person was doing, uh, you know, if they were if, if you know if the other sort of perceived one taking a uh, a um, you know sort of a competitive advantage over the other one, the, you know, uh, you know Toto would report Red Bull and vice versa. So uh, a lot of that uh, is is true, uh, and uh, but. But I would say the true blue fans still want it to be about, 
you know the the timing uh the timing charts and uh and the actual competition on track and they kind of feel like the the uh real reality tv aspect mm. um of of the sport is is sort of very is, is like the uh, you know the impr- the imprimatur of this new american ownership group and is bringing in these sort of uh, you know johnny come lately's like yourself and myself who are just like eating eating all of this drama up and uh, take umbrage uh, to that in some sense that, you know, was a, a, lot, a lot of the newcomers are only here for the soap opera and we remember this bar when it was cool. But, uh, but you know, like that's, I feel like eventually, uh, the you know, the, the show, the people who came to F1 for the show will age into the purists and then we'll have a whole new generation of sort of soap fans to turn our noses at. So <laughs> okay. it, it, it will, it will happen. It, we just need a few years and some time and, and, and uh, perhaps even an American driver to, to get invested in. Oh, well, there's a thought. Um, but yeah. you know, I have to say the kinds of people who called us when we put out a, a little message to listeners saying, Hey, we're, you know, we're going to do a show about uh, drive to survive. It's very interesting because I think, okay, it's so not, it's not a scientific survey at all, but it, it's indicative of um, the new fans of F1. I mean, for example, here's Karen Mount. She listens to On Point from Grants Pass, Oregon. And she said, after watching the first season of Drive to Survive, she's become addicted to it. Did we even care before the show was presented? No, I didn't. I didn't give a hoot about F1. And now I'm really interested in what happens at all the races and uh, love the characters. Um, I think Lewis Hamilton is a true gentleman and scholar. I mean, he's a fierce competitor, don't get me wrong, but um, his sportsmanship, you know, sets the bar very high. And uh, we're just looking forward to uh, the next season and following the races right now. Drew, we've just got about a minute and a half before uh, the next break here, but can you talk about the importance of getting the drivers in front of these cameras? Uh, because, you know, they are, they're huge stars globally, but uh, almost every person that I know who's watched Drive to Survive had no idea who these men were until the series. Right. Well, well I'll start with Lewis just because he's such a gift and the fact that he uh cares to do anything beyond horde championships is uh really amazing and i just want uh listeners to understand like not just the only black guy in formula one now like the only black guy in formula one ever Mm -hmm. uh so the fact that he has uh you know, come on like uh, Tiger Woods did when he uh, jumped to the PGA and and delivered on every single uh, expectation and exceeded it to such a degree that now he is, you know, basically the only thing that he has left is to win an eighth championship is mind boggling. But even in the top of the show where you're talking about uh, Daniel Ricardo and, uh, um, you know, uh, just all these various other like this is a very uh, young, uh, telegenic uh, group of guys. And I feel like, you know, part of the the, uh, you know, the the um, sort of what the thing that the, I guess the Liberty leadership saw was that, like, look, we have we have some cheesecake here that is it's they're, they're not just like these these guys who uh you know these these test pilots that just go around in circles like there's some real there's some real personality and sex appeal here too yeah well drew lawrence and carlos there hang on we just have to take another 
a quick minute break here, but we're talking about Formula One Drive to Survive, the Netflix series, but also the advertising and the algorithmic data behind it uh, that's being used to drive the growth of Formula One fandom in the United States. We'll be back. This is On Point. A gruesome scandal at the nation's most prestigious university shines a light on a macabre and lucrative world of buying and selling human remains. Human body parts taken by a manager at the Harvard Medical School morgue and then sold to customers online. So my first skull is right there on the top shelf. That's my first and my favorite. I'm reporter Ali Jarmani, and this story raises some tough questions. How should we treat the dead? And who gets to decide? There should be some middle ground where we treat deceased tissues differently than we treat old refrigerators. This is Postmortem, The Stolen Bodies of Harvard, a new season of WBUR's Last Scene. Listen and follow Last Scene wherever you get your podcasts. This is On Point. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty, and today we're talking about the story behind Formula One Drive to Survive, this popular Netflix series that has created a surge in popularity for F1 racing in the United States, and whether we're likely to see a lot more of these sort of purpose-built, quote-unquote, documentaries um, about sports that are made to create a new generation of fans. I'm joined today by Drew Lawrence. He's a freelance reporter who's written for Sports Illustrated, The Guardian, and other publications. He's working on an upcoming F1 podcast for the Red Bulletin magazine, published by Red Bull Media House. Of course, Red Bull being a huge team in F1 racing. And Carlos Serra is with us as well. He's chief operating officer at Audience, uh, Audience Intelligence and Social Media Analysis Company. He recently wrote... Uh, a post titled The Netflix Effect, How an F1 Docuseries Set Off a Meteoric Rise in Popularity in the U.S. And let's listen to a little uh, bit more of of the on-point listeners who've been pulled in to that meteoric rise in popularity. Here's Holly Shook from Kalamazoo, Michigan, who got into F1, in fact, uh, without drive to survive. She was into it uh, before the series, and she says one of the reasons uh, that keeps her a fan is the community of fans. Once you attend a race, um, I think you would be hooked just like any other major sporting event or festival. Um, It's phenomenal to be around international fans that are all um, there for the joy and all have appreciation for the amount of work, effort, engineering, and commitment it takes for those teams to show up at the different um, locations around the world. It really is a joy um, and thrill to watch the sport. That's Holly from Kalamazoo, Michigan. Here's Braden League from Seattle who says his friends became F1 fans over the past couple of years and they decided their annual group trip would be to the Formula One race in Austin, Texas this year. I had not followed F1 previous to this season, but, you know, me wanting to be part of them traveling and and meeting up, I uh, started watching F1 this season. And also in the process of of getting all into F1, I've learned that a bunch of my coworkers like F1, a bunch of my friends at the local bar like F1, and it's really been a fun thing to kind of – talk about and gather gather around you know even a couple of weeks ago and we had a, a 10 a.m race here we uh, all went to the bar at 10 a.m in the morning and uh you know the owner opened it up for us and we got to hang out and, and watch the race in the morning it was really fun 
On Point listener Braden League from Seattle there. Carlos, Sarah, can we, I just want to um, focus attention for a second on um, what Netflix gets out of this, like a super popular uh, show like this, especially given the recent drop in um, in subscribers, which is maybe uh, signaling a little bit of trouble for Netflix. But what do you think, Carlos? Well, um, I think looking at the subscriber drop, um, it has nothing to do with their data. It's just the context in which we are living today, but as well the packaging of the product. So it's not just if you can create content that it's going to succeed, which I believe it's in excess of 90% in the case of Netflix, which is way above any other type of content production out there, success uh, metrics. I think it's more packaging and the context in, in which we are. So that subscriber drop, if we put it to the side and answering to what Drew was saying before, I'm, I'm a Formula One fan. I come from Spain. Hmm. I know Hamilton on a lot of championships, but obviously I will say Fernando Alonso is the best driver in history. There is drama between us. And, and where I'm taking this now too is where where the show Drive to Survive has an amazing potential above other shows is the fact that there is an online, offline experience as well. Your, your uh, listeners, they were touching upon that. Yeah. The fact that it's not just the show, but also you have the stadium experience, it's international uh, people can can go and watch it. The fact that people can come together and, and not only watch the show, but as well watch the race itself, although maybe they, they might not like it as much as the show, I think that's a big thing for, for this Netflix production. Because the reality is you like the 20 drivers, maybe you like 10, doesn't matter. Tomorrow, I'm going to be watching a fashion designer's uh, show and and every season I'm going to fall in love with at least two or three of them. And I don't like fashion myself. So that's the potential that Netflix has is uh, about clustering those behaviors, understanding what people can like or not. Uh, and maybe they didn't even know that they were going to like it. So when you say, and there is some truth in that, when you say that it was built for people to like it without them knowing it, uh-huh. you're completely right. Uh-huh. How do you produce the content, they they have enough behavioral data to know how they are going to like it and what elements to introduce on that. And if then on top of that, you can assign and you can put some sparkles of how you can advertise it, how you can market it, how to drive new audiences to that. And then you have an online offer experience has to be a success yeah so that's why las vegas is the next one right rather than austin austin is already there but where is the next austin las vegas why Uh because that's not a motor racing place Uh it's uh for the average person they want to attract to the show yeah so so uh I'm glad you brought up Las Vegas, Carlos, because, Drew, I was just about to ask you if you can just describe briefly, sort of concretely, how we've seen uh, fandom um, and and the business of, of F1 change in the United States. I mean, there are several races now in the U.S. Do I, uh, help me out here. Yeah, we well, we went from, uh, and first of all, I, I wanted to say, Carlos, I, I meant no disrespect to Fernando Alonso, who is a fa- fabulous, <laughs> oh, please, fabulous please. driver. Uh 
but uh, but yeah, I mean, we in a space of five or so years have gone from, or well, probably ten ten years, let's say, um, have gone from uh, you know no Formula One races in the United States to more Formula One races in the United States than in any other country. Uh, next year we'll. You know, we, in addition to Las Vegas, we'll have uh, the Miami Grand Prix, which starts, uh, which debuts next week. And, you know, Miami is another one of those uh, markets uh, that Carlos is talking about where, you know, in, in some ways it's just, it's surprising that it's taken this long for yeah. F1 to get there. Because I think of it as sort of the most quintessential uh, uh, F1 American city and that it is, you know, international, it is coastal, it is... It's wretched excess. There's a speed <laughs> culture, yeah. and, uh, and and yeah, it, it just seemed like it, it should have been here all along. Um, but uh, but yeah, in in this in the you know four seasons of uh, of Drive to Survive, Formula One's gone from like an eight uh, seven eight billion dollar uh, property that was popular with uh, sort of a middle aged men to a thirteen billion dollar property that is probably the most uh liked sports among uh young people and that's with a television deal uh you know, that's with them basically giving away their tv rights for free to espn so um this so, sport has tons of room for growth would you so would you really uh, attribute i mean that so that's a, that is a huge leap forward that you just described right yeah would you really attribute a lot of that to this netflix series well, it's a combination okay. of all the factors that uh, that, that Carlos described, yeah. just about you know freeing up uh, freeing up content, uh, you know, the, 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 you know nurturing uh, nurturing audiences on social media, uh, putting uh, putting the races on uh, ESPN, but letting Sky Sports, which has its you know its brilliant heritage covering. Uh, Formula One uh, do it uh, in the European style instead of us trying to sort of, you know, uh, be authorities on a thing. Uh, Americans trying to be an authority on a thing that they don't, that they, they, they aren't, you know, that we haven't been <laughs> watching closely to begin with. Yeah. Um, and then the cherry on top of that is, you know, probably the cherry and the nuts and, and maybe a little bit of the whipped cream is, uh, is Drive to Survive, which sort of... Uh, you know, turbo it has like this turbocharged on ramp for casual viewers to get sucked into this world and be totally invested in it by the time they're they're really deep in it. Okay, I will admit that I did hop over to YouTube after a while and started looking <laughs> up videos of like how how okay how is a F one uh, helmet designed? What's the actual like posture in the seat that a driver takes? Uh, what's yeah. on the what's on the steering wheel? You know all these. After I saw the episode uh, with Grosjean surviving and right. flaming inferno, I was like, what do they wear? So a little bit of crossover there and trying to trying to increase my knowledge of the actual sort of science and technology behind F1. But we did also hear, by the way, from from motor racing fans um, who kind of like still look askance at F1 for specific reasons. Here's Brian Gurney from Marblehead, Massachusetts. The spectacle of F1 is almost bigger than the actual racing. There's only a few cars that win every week among aficionados. Lots of us think the racing is boring all in one line. So the whole 
production, spectacle shows. It is good racing, but IndyCar, NASCAR, sports cars, other racing can be more interesting and competitive. Uh, Drew, what do you think? Those are fighting words. Uh, they are fighting <laughs> words. I'm with him on IndyCar, and I guess that's the element that I forgot to talk about yeah. that has sort of contributed to F1's rise in popularity, that uh, as all of these other things are happening, we're sort of uh, the sport was... Uh, sort of trending toward a once-in-a-generation title fight between Red Bull's Max Verstappen and uh, and Mercedes's Lewis Hamilton that played out in very dramatic fashion uh, last season. And so, uh, to answer the listener's point, I would say that he he may have a point with uh, IndyCar, which is definitely a much more wide-open series in terms of the parity and the teams that can win. But uh, but come on, NASCAR. I mean, you got forty three cars or forty two cars in that field, and uh, you know I would venture to say the same uh, three to four uh, car franchises uh, win a cup race every week. Mm. It's very it's extremely rare yeah. for somebody to come from you know thirty five on down and uh, and and sweep it, unless we're talking about a. Uh, a, a super speedway style a Talladega Daytona style race, but I don't want to. I don't want to get too deep in the weeds there. <laughs> now, I just I will say that uh, w- one thing that was of the many things that were fascinating to me about the series, uh, Carlos and Drew, is that uh, F one the teams are also famously secretive, right? I mean, like like they the the des- the designs of the cars, the actual technology uh is uh is, is like information that they keep uh locked away in a vault essentially. At, at least it felt to me like that. Uh and that's why in part I actually felt myself getting frustrated with the series after a while cuz I wanted to see more of the cars. <laughs> I actually like wanted, you know, there was that whole controversy in one of the series about like um, Mercedes having an illegal part on their car, and I wanted to like understand yeah. what it was and why. And but like we they we didn't get to see enough of that. But anyway, I'll, I'll put that aside. Just like my my STEM nerd part, like felt unsatisfied after a while. But the bigger question here now, moving forward, is given the success of Drive to Survive. Are we going to see more, again, quote, documentaries? I want to come up with a new word, like a sport adversimentary, advertisementary is what I'm going to call it, (laughs) in other sports. I mean, Carlos, do do you think that's going to happen? I I think it's already there. Uh, One of the new ways that here, at least in Europe, people are, the young generations are engaging with soccer as we call it in the U.S., it's via this type of content. It's quite interesting. Um, Soccer is a global game. In Europe, it's massive. However, we are struggling to drag the younger demographics and the females to watch soccer. The same problem that you had in the U.S. potentially with F1 and actually across the world. Well, a new way of consumption. That consumption has two elements particularly. One would be this type of documentary, if you want to call it. I would say it's a different type of summary, exciting summary of a particular sport that touches upon the personalities, the dramas, and everything that is happening. And people love it, and that's a way of consuming it. It's having eyeballs on the sport, even if they don't like the sport itself, 
Remember, it's not about the sport. Mm -hmm. And the second thing, which we haven't touched upon, and I think it's quite important, is channels like Twitch, um, like TikTok, where you still can consume the content as well. It's not just the documentary. And that's another way to connect with those audiences. If you think about Lando Norris, yeah. uh, he had a Twitch channel where he was having more than 70,000 viewers, at live viewers at any point during the race. That's 10% of how much it was the viewership of the race itself mm. right. on TV. Wow. Carlos, it's if, crazy. If, so, yeah. if you forgive me for a second, I'm just running out of time here and forgive me for that. But I wanted to uh, let Drew have uh, the last word here because, um, you know, to put a, a finer line under it, like p golf wants to do a drive to survive type series. I mean, really? They do. Uh, and, uh, and as Carlos said, it's already happening. It's yeah. happening in tennis. It's happening in surfing. It's happening. Uh, it's happening all over sports, but I think, uh, Formula One's ace in the hole is that is as you described that that Grosjean moment. You know, at the end of the day, this isn't just a a cutthroat uh, business and a and a highly competitive sporting environment. It is uh, it is uh, it's men playing with their lives and uh, and losing in uh, in rare cases. So, uh, you know that. At the end of the day, having that dramatic element is a huge advantage over over other sports, uh, you know, like golf, um, where uh, you know you're, you're never going to get that kind of a that kind of a dramatic moment as, as Grosjean had. Wow. Well, but the PGA Golf Tour is using Drive to Survive as its blueprint, so we'll we'll see what happens there. Drew Lawrence, freelance reporter, who's also working on an upcoming F1 podcast. Uh, for the Red Bullet. And thank you so much, Drew, for joining us today. Thank you. And Carlos Serra, Chief Operating Officer at Audience and Audience Intelligent and Social Media Analysis Company. Carlos, thank you so very much for joining us. Thank you, Meghna, for having us. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty. This is On Point. Support for this podcast comes from Is Business Broken, a podcast from BU Questrom School of Business. Listen on for a preview of one of the episodes. ESG, or environmental social governance, challenges businesses to think beyond the immediate bottom line. But before ESG, the Balance Scorecard did something similar. Questrom's Eddie Riedel explains. The big thing that was groundbreaking about the Balance Scorecard is really this idea to move beyond thinking about financial statements, which everybody had thought about since the 1920s, right? That was kind of the gold standard for how to evaluate a company and its performance. And the balanced scorecard's big insight, I think, was to get companies internally to think about, well, what if you don't just focus on financial measures? There are other things that are going to affect your performance, and maybe they won't affect them today, but they're going to affect them in the short-term, mid-term, long-term. Building in those other criteria, those other dimensions, 
and explicitly linking that to your strategy, to how your company is going to operate, what kind of big decisions it's going to make, that's really what the big inside of the balanced scorecard was meant to do. And at the time, uh, it, right now, it doesn't seem particularly revolutionary. It seems kind of obvious. We've been stuck in the ESG movement for a while, and thinking about linking these things to corporate strategy seems pretty obvious. At the time, it was a pretty big, whoa, kind of moment. Find the full episode by searching for Is Business Broken wherever you listen to podcasts and learn more about the Mayrotra Institute for Business, Markets, and Society at ibms.bu.edu.